This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso lemon scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get Hefty Ultra Strong with new Fabuloso Lemon Scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat next to the fire. Victoria Clembier was born on November 2nd, 1991, in the shanty town of Abobo, near the city of Abidjan, on the southern coastline of the Ivory Coast in northwest Africa. The fifth of seven children to her parents, Francis and Berta, Victoria spoke both her local language and French, as the Ivory Coast is a former French colony. Victoria was a well-behaved, respectful, happy girl who enjoyed singing and dancing to entertain her family. Her bubbly personality and liveliness at family gatherings endeared her to those she met, with her mother remembering Victoria as, quote, full of happiness, with a beautiful smile. The Clumbiers were a devout Christian family, with Francis working as a waiter at a hotel to support his large but close-knit family. In October 1998, 42-year-old Marie-Therese Quau came to visit the Clumbier family while she was in the Ivory Coast for her brother's funeral. Marie Therese, who had a life in France and was a French citizen, was Francis's aunt and Victoria's great aunt. Marie Therese had been divorced for 20 years and, as far as her family knew, worked for an airline. Even though she had been born in the Ivory Coast, Marie Therese had come to live in France courtesy of her brother, who had provided her with the benefit of a Western education in France. When she was a teenager, during her visit with the Clumbiers, Marie Therese proposed a similar arrangement for Victoria. It was an attractive offer. Francis had just lost his job, and as a result, the family was forced to downsize from their three-bedroom accommodation to one-room housing. As we've learned, Marie Therese's offer to take Victoria to France was common amongst families and small communities in the Ivory Coast. Even though the Clumbiers had only met Marie Therese on a handful of occasions, she was an elder of the family and the matriarch, and they intrinsically trusted her. She wasn't a total stranger, and Victoria's parents were hopeful their daughter would have access to opportunities which they couldn't provide. Escaping the high rate of poverty, disruption caused by civil war, and the educational disadvantages appealed to many Ivorian parents, 
In that regard, participation in private fostering was an offer that was too good to refuse. Birte herself had been raised by a maternal aunt, so she was familiar with the practice of parents accepting the assistance of extended family. Instead of relying on financial support from the government, Marie-Thérèse didn't provide the Clembiers with her address in Paris, but this was no reason for concern. Berthe felt embarrassed for pleading with Marie-Thérèse, please take care of my baby, but the older woman was reassuring and swore on a Bible that she would take care of Victoria as her own grandchild. She even showed the Clembiers her credit cards as proof of her financial security. Francis and Berthe purchased Victoria a new pink tracksuit in preparation for the European winter with her favorite doll, Seven-year-old Victoria set off with Marie Therese in November 1998 for Paris. Her parents recall her being happy and excited about her new life. Berta later told the Daily Mail newspaper that Marie Therese promised to be in touch every month, saying, quote, We were always reassured Victoria was fine. I wasn't worried about her, though. I was missing her. The Clembiers didn't have a phone, but instead received messages via their local pharmacy which was some distance away. Upon arriving in Paris, Marie Therese and Victoria lived in government housing. Marie Therese wasn't working for an airline at all, but was instead claiming welfare benefits. Victoria was enrolled at the Jean Moulin Primary School in Villefant, but only a month later, Marie Therese started receiving warnings regarding Victoria's absenteeism. By February 1999, Victoria had been attending school around only 50% of the time. Even though medical certificates covered some of her absences, the school became so concerned that authorities were notified and a social worker was assigned to investigate the situation. Even when Victoria was in school, teachers noticed she had been falling asleep during class. To add to the strangeness of the situation, Marie Therese informed the school that Victoria had to wear a wig over her shaved head to conceal a scalp condition. As French school authorities closed in, Marie Therese was also facing eviction from her apartment due to unpaid rent. She also owed just over 14,000 francs, or 2,000 pounds, to the state after incorrectly receiving welfare benefits she was required to repay. Only five months after arriving in Paris, Marie Therese decided to leave the country and take Victoria with her. She told the Combiers that her job had been transferred to London and notified Victoria's school that the relocation was to allow Victoria to receive medical treatment. On April 24, 1999, Marie Therese and Victoria arrived in Britain, where they found accommodation at a bed and breakfast in the borough of Ealing in West London. Marie Therese spoke some English, but Victoria spoke none. The day after their arrival, Marie Therese took Victoria along to visit one of Marie Therese's relatives by marriage. Esther Aka, who worked as a midwife, counselor, and preacher. During the visit, Esther thought it was unusual that the small and timid-looking Victoria was wearing a wig. She was shocked to see that when the wig was removed, Victoria had no hair and patchy marks on her scalp. She also had blisters around her hairline, which Marie Therese explained away by saying Victoria had been accidentally scalded by hot water. The day after the visit, Marie Therese and Victoria attended Ealing Social Services, where Marie Therese submitted an application for council housing. Staff found it unusual that within two days of arriving in the country, Marie Therese presented herself as a homeless person 
With a young child, Marie Touré told social service staff that she and Victoria arrived in London on a travel package funded by French Social Security, including seven days bed and breakfast accommodation. However, she added that she was unable to financially support herself and Victoria for more than a few days. Marie Touré told social services that she had left three other children in France and that she came to the country to improve her English. Marie Touré claimed she'd previously worked at a Paris airport, but that she had no immediate intention of returning to France. Marie Touré's housing application was declined on residency grounds, but a telephone referral was made to an Ealing Council social worker to provide appropriate assistance. On May 1st, Marie Touré and Victoria moved to temporary hostel accommodation on Nickel Road in Harleston, in the North London borough of Brent. Marie Touré continued to take Victoria with her to visit Ealing Social Services, requesting housing assistance. During these frequent attendances, staff found something unusual about the relationship between the older woman and young girl. Marie Touré's lack of maternal warmth toward Victoria led staff to suspect that the pair were not in fact mother and daughter, as Marie Touré claimed. Marie Touré also provided conflicting information to staff, who found her forceful and manipulative, and wouldn't allow Victoria to answer questions. Staff were also suspicious that Marie Touré was coaching Victoria in her responses, including bursting into tears. More concerning, though, was Victoria's disheveled appearance, Staff observed that Marie Touré was always dressed and groomed immaculately, wearing expensive-looking clothing and jewelry. But in contrast, Victoria was shabbily and inappropriately dressed for the weather, usually wearing what looked like hand-me-down clothes. Staff also noticed that Victoria was wearing a wig and didn't really resemble her passport photo. Marie Touré explained that Victoria had short hair, which accounted for the wig, but social services staff didn't pursue the matter. Instead, suspecting that Marie Touré was intentionally presenting Victoria in such a way to support her application for housing and government benefits, Healing Social Services recommended that Marie Touré and Victoria return to France, where they would be eligible to receive government assistance Marie Touré was seeking. In early June, Marie Touré got a cleaning job at a local hospital, but Victoria still wasn't enrolled in school. Despite the referral made to Ealing Social Services in late April, no one had followed this up, and the pair had by now moved to a different borough. The same day Marie Therese started her new job, she took Victoria to a local doctor. But it's not clear why, as Victoria wasn't reported to have any health concerns, so she wasn't physically examined. Instead of enrolling Victoria in school, Marie Therese arranged for her to be babysat at the house of a local woman named Priscilla Cameron. From around 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. each night, Victoria enjoyed the warm and caring atmosphere at Priscilla's, where she watched TV, drew, played, ate nutritious meals, and her English improved. But as it drew closer to the time for Marie Touré to collect Victoria each night, she became quiet and withdrawn. As time went on, Priscilla noticed unusual things about Victoria and the dynamic with Marie Touré who called the young and exceptionally well-behaved girl wicked. Priscilla started to notice a general deterioration of Victoria's physical condition, including cuts on her fingers. When Priscilla raised this with Marie Touré, her concerns were dismissed when she was told that Victoria was self-harming. 
using razor blades to cut her fingers. Around June 14th, Marie There and Victoria ran into Esther Aka on the street by chance. Esther felt extremely uneasy when she noticed a scar and bruising on Victoria's right cheek, which Marie There explained away by saying Victoria had fallen on an escalator. Esther didn't believe this, was now even more worried. That same day, Marie There and Victoria were on a bus when Marie There got chatting to the driver, 26-year-old Carl Manning. Carl gave Marie There his phone number, and the pair soon started dating. Aside from being 16 years Marie There's junior, Carl hadn't many girlfriends, and Marie There was his first serious relationship. It had been three days since Esther had run into Marie There and Victoria, and she still couldn't shake her worry, so she decided to pay them a visit. The cramped, unhygienic, and messy hostel accommodation left a lot to be desired. It was no place for a seven-year-old girl, who to Esther had also lost weight and didn't look well. Esther made an anonymous report to the emergency hotline for Brent Social Services, providing Marie Therese's address and requesting someone visit as a matter of urgency. Esther's call prompted a referral being faxed to the Brent Social Work Department that day. A week went by, and as far as Esther knew, nothing had happened. Still concerned, she called Brent Social Services around June 21, 1999, to follow up a report about Victoria. Esther was advised that social services had probably done something about it, which seemed to be the end of things. Esther wasn't reassured, but wasn't sure what else she could do. Two weeks later, Marie There moved into her boyfriend Carl's studio flat in Tottenham, in the North London borough of Haringey, along with Victoria. Even though Carl owned the flat, it was in no way big enough for three people, with only two sofa beds in the living area a small kitchen, and a tiny bathroom. Victoria slept on one of these sofa beds. While Carl and Marie There were at work during the day, Marie There continued to leave Victoria with her babysitter, Priscilla. The same day Marie There and Victoria moved in with Carl, Esther Akaz's first referral to Brent Social Services from three weeks earlier was finally picked up. The details were logged onto the computer, including information about Victoria's injury as reported by Esther, but somehow, the senior social worker and intake team manager completed documentation for the referral, generated by Esther's second report, not the first. And as far as the intake team were concerned, it was nothing more serious than concerns that Victoria wasn't attending school. The day after Marie There and Victoria moved in with Carl, Brent Social Services sent a letter to Marie There's previous address advising that social workers would be visiting, but no one was there, and Brent Council had no idea the pair had moved to Tottenham. That same day, Ealing Social Services also closed their file on Victoria. It had been just over two months since Marie There and Victoria had arrived in England, but Marie There remained dogged in her determination to access government benefits. Until she moved in with Carl, She'd visited Ealing Social Services a total of 18 times, seeking housing assistance, with Victoria accompanying her on at least 10 occasions. On July 13, 1999, Marie There dropped Victoria off at Priscilla's house for babysitting as usual, but she had a strange request. Marie There wanted Priscilla to take Victoria in to live with her permanently, saying Carl didn't want the young girl around. 
When Priscilla saw the bags of clothes Marie There was carrying, she realized with alarm that she was serious. Priscilla agreed to let Victoria stay overnight, but told Marie There that she couldn't take Victoria permanently. Scolding the older woman that the request amounted to abandoning Victoria, Priscilla was perplexed by such a brazen request made in such callous and offhand matter, but it wasn't until she looked at Victoria more closely that she realized there was a bigger issue. Victoria was wearing a baseball cap that concealed most her face. When she removed it, Priscilla could see Victoria had bloodshot eyes, a cut over her right eye, a loose piece of skin hanging from her right eyelid, and a burn on her right cheek that was still healing. Marie There claimed Victoria's injuries were self-inflicted and left. During the night, Priscilla woke to the sound of Victoria groaning in pain in her sleep. When Priscilla checked in on the young girl, she saw pus oozing from her fingers that her face was swollen. What was going on? Being at Priscilla's house had always seemed to offer Victoria a brief respite and cheered her up. And Priscilla's adult daughter, Avril, now felt compelled to do something. The Cameron saw Victoria had additional cuts and bruises to her hands and legs, which couldn't possibly have been self-inflicted. The next day, on July 14th, Avril took Victoria to the emergency department at Central Middlesex Hospital. Avril told the staff that she had concerns Victoria was being abused. During a two-hour physical examination, further injuries were found on Victoria's body. These included cigarette burns on her thighs, injuries extending across her back and legs, and affected cuts on her fingers. Fresh and old scars of various sizes covering her body, face, and corners of her mouth. The doctor also noticed Victoria had a pungent smell and appeared unkempt. After speaking with Avril, the doctor concluded that Victoria's injuries were not accidental. In line with the hospital's child protection protocol, Victoria was referred to the on-call pediatric registrar with a view to a more thorough physical examination occurring. When the registrar examined Victoria and asked her about her injuries, she told her that they were self-inflicted. The registrar felt this was not only untrue, but agreed that the injuries were non-accidental. Thoroughly documenting her observations and concerns before admitting Victoria to the ward. The same day Avril took Victoria to hospital, two social workers from Brent Social Services visited Marie Therese's former address in response to Esther's previous referrals. The social workers weren't really sure what they were meant to be following up, but they weren't aware that Marie Therese and Victoria had already moved out as no one came to the door. The social workers didn't make any further inquiries, but noted on Victoria's file, quote, not at this address, have moved. Meanwhile, local police and Brent Social Services were notified about Victoria by hospital staff. Victoria was placed under a 72-hour protection order, which meant she couldn't leave the hospital during that period, even with a caregiver. The next day, Victoria was assessed by Dr. Ruby Schwartz, a consultant pediatrician and child protection physician, and angry Marie There was by now aware of the hospitalization. And Dr. Schwartz asked her how Victoria sustained her injuries. Marie There claimed Victoria had scabies and that her injuries were self-inflicted as a result of constant scratching. Despite the nature and extent of Victoria's injuries, 
Dr. Schwartz didn't speak to Victoria to ascertain further information as to how these occurred. Dr. Schwartz accepted Marie Therese's explanation and formally recorded a diagnosis of scabies. Despite not ordering a skin swab or seeking a dermatologist's opinion, by this stage, a senior Brent social worker named Michelle was ready to investigate the notification received from the hospital that resulted in the protection order. However, when Dr. Schwartz's diagnosis of scabies was received, Michelle downgraded the level of priority and closed the file without even meeting with Victoria to assess the situation. Michelle advised the police officer from the Brent Child Protection Team assigned to investigate the report, Police Constable Rachel DeWer, that Victoria had been diagnosed with scabies. PC DeWar decided to remove the police protection order, but she hadn't spoken to or seen Victoria, Marie Ture, or Carl, contrary to legislative child protection requirements. Victoria was discharged into Marie Ture's care on July 15th. When Avril Cameron learned of the outcome, she was angry, frustrated, and in a state of disbelief. Not only had no further action been taken, but Victoria had been allowed to return home with the woman who Avril suspected had been her abuser. This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! <sniffs> and this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso lemon scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get Hefty Ultra Strong with new Fabuloso Lemon Scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. The day of Victoria's discharge from hospital, Marie Ture visited Ealing Social Services again. But as the agency considered her contract to be housing-related, it closed the case. Tragically, the Camerons would never see Victoria again. Nine days earlier, on July 24th, Marie Ture and Victoria presented at the emergency department at North Middlesex Hospital, a different facility to the one where Victoria had previously been admitted. Victoria had sustained severe scalding and burning to her head and face, but staff also noticed her dress was dirty and she wasn't wearing any underwear. Marie Ture told hospital staff that Victoria had scalded herself when she put her head underneath the hot tap in the bath, turning on the water to relieve the itching caused by scabies, as well as using utensils to scratch at her inflamed skin. But there was no skin lesions to suggest Victoria had scabies, and hospital staff were immediately suspicious that the injuries weren't accidental. This included an injury to Victoria's torso that looked like a mark from a belt buckle, and marks that appeared to be made by looped wire. The treating doctor didn't feel Victoria's burns were consistent with having water poured over her head in the manner described by Marie Ture, who was unable to provide a consistent account of when the scalding occurred. Photographs were taken documenting Victoria's burns, and despite how painful her injuries would have been, Victoria smiled broadly at the camera. During the next few days, hospital staff noticed that Victoria didn't have the usual amount of belongings that other children had on the ward. To cheer her up, nurses brought her dresses, sweets, and gifts, which Victoria was thrilled to receive. Nurses described her as a ray of sunshine throughout her painful recovery. But they noticed a marked change in her demeanor 
whenever Marie There visited, describing the relationship as one of master and servant as opposed to parent and child. In an incident that deeply troubled hospital staff during Victoria's stay, Marie There visited the ward and began loudly berating Victoria. The seven-year-old stood to attention by her bed as she was admonished, but was so scared that she wet herself. Despite consultant pediatrician Dr. Mary Rossiter's concerns and observations that Victoria showed signs of neglect and abuse, on August 2nd, she wrote in Victoria's file, able to discharge during Victoria's hospitalization, Enfield Social Services took carriage of the child protection issue. But as Victoria lived in Herringay, the matter was referred to that particular consul's social service team. However, no one from the social services spoke for Victoria during her hospitalization, nor was any child protection conference arranged upon her discharge to ensure ongoing monitoring. Despite Brent Social Services having discovered that Priscilla Cameron was an unregistered babysitter, contrary to consul requirements, no inquiries were made as to why. Dr. Rossiter was of the understanding that local police and social services were aware of the matter and would take over. Victoria's new social service worker from Herringay, Lisa Authorworry, only had 19 months experience, so she relied heavily on the supervision and support from her manager, Carol Baptiste. Assisting Lisa with Victoria's case was Child Protection Police Constable Karen Jones, who had been informed by hospital staff of evidence of belt buckle marks on Victoria's body. Lisa and PC Jones were due to visit Victoria for follow-up on August 4, 1999. However, when they realized Victoria had been diagnosed with scabies, PC Jones canceled the visit. She told Lisa that scabies was highly infectious, that after seeking advice from the hospital, she had concerns about catching it from the furniture in the flat. Lisa didn't question this advice. Instead, she informed her supervisor, Carol, who was said to have agreed to the home visit being canceled. Arrangements were made for Marie There to attend an interview at the social services instead. Four days had now passed between Victoria's admission and the notification being made to police. The day after the canceled visit, another Harringay senior social worker referred Victoria to Tottenham Child and Family Center, a local branch of the NSPCC. The acronym stands for the National Society of Prevention of Cruelty to Children, which is a British charity that works to prevent child abuse. It wasn't clear why Victoria was referred, and when the branch contacted Harringay Social Services, they were informed that Victoria had since moved out of the area, and her file was therefore closed. That same day, Lisa and PC Jones met with Marie There, had social services to follow up after Victoria's discharge from hospital. Marie There told them that Carl was a close family friend who agreed to help her by providing accommodation in his flat till Marie There and Victoria found somewhere permanent. Marie There maintained that Victoria accidentally scalded herself when she poured hot water over her head in an attempt to alleviate her itchy scalp and had injured herself by scratching with kitchen utensils. After briefly speaking to Victoria, mostly in English, P.C. Jones and Lisa determined there was no evidence of a crime and therefore no grounds for police protection. Lisa and P.C. Jones concluded that Victoria's injuries were accidental 
and Victoria remained in the care of Marie There. On August 7th, Marie There again applied for housing assistance with Ealing Social Services. Meanwhile, North Middlesex Hospital had requested a community health visitor to follow up on Victoria. The health visitor's role was to provide a form of surveillance to ensure Victoria was meeting developmental markers and interacted appropriately with her family, but no contact or subsequent visit by the health visitor occurred. Around this time, Marie There introduced Victoria to a couple she met on the street the month before, who subsequently babysat Victoria in the following months. But the couple noticed Victoria was quiet and withdrawn, and that Marie There always shouted at her, instructing her to sit silently on the corner. The BBC reported that on August 13, 1999, 11 days after Victoria's second hospital discharge, Dr. Rossiter wrote to the hospital liaison social worker for Haringey Hospital, Petra Kitchman. Despite Dr. Rossiter's original notes about Victoria being fit for discharge, she was unaware this had occurred and was worried and angry. In her letter to Petra, Dr. Rossiter wrote, I never managed to speak to a social worker face-to-face, and my understanding was that there would be a social assessment prior to an urgent planning meeting, and then referral to a child psychiatrist. Unfortunately, the staff seemed to think that social workers can discharge patients or under the care of a doctor. Although I would probably have let the girl go home, at least the consultant should have been informed. I have enormous concerns about this child who is now lost to follow up somewhere in Haringey. What are you going to do? Despite Dr. Rossiter's strong concerns, Petra didn't arrange a meeting, said speaking with the doctor on the phone. But when Dr. Rossiter failed to receive any further updates after the discussion, she wrote to Petra again on September 2nd. The letter was received a week later, but as Petra was on an annual leave at the time, She didn't see it until she returned on September 23rd. Petra was of the understanding that her mail would be opened and passed on to her manager when she was out of the office, but this didn't happen. Petra didn't attach a great degree of urgency to Dr. Rossiter's second letter. Marie There, meanwhile, had submitted another housing application in early September, this time in Brent, which she was advised would have a seven-week turnaround. The application was assessed as being non-urgent due to Marie There indicating that she wasn't homeless or at risk of becoming homeless. Brent Social Services wrote to Marie There on October 28th, advising that further details were required. But she didn't respond, and Brent closed Victoria's case, marked as referred to Ealing Social Services. Petra Kitchman finally wrote back to Dr. Rossiter on October 19th but didn't apologize for the delay in responding. She noted social worker Lisa Arthurworry's view that Dr. Rossiter's concern about deliberate physical harm and marks on Victoria's body had been addressed. This was based on Dr. Schwartz's previous diagnosis of scabies at Central Middlesex Hospital, where it was concluded that Victoria didn't show signs of deliberate physical harm. As far as social services were concerned, the family's legal status in England wasn't clear but Victoria still wasn't attending school. Lisa Arthur Worry had visited Victoria at Carl's flat on October 16th and visited again on October 28th. 
Lisa didn't feel there was any evidence of child abuse or neglect on either occasion, nor did she have any concern about Victoria's interactions with Marie There. The small flat was cramped but tidy and clean, and Victoria seemed happy enough and well-dressed. But Lisa didn't speak to her on either visit, nor did she pursue any inquiries about Victoria's education, or even clarify the nature of her relationship with Marie There, simply assuming that they were mother and daughter, being of African-Caribbean descent herself, Lisa assumed that Victoria's compliance and withdrawn demeanor in Marie There and Carl's presence wasn't motivated by fear, but out of respect shown towards elders by children and African-Caribbean cultures. At the October visit, Lisa informed Marie There that her housing application had been declined. Obscura is brought to you by Inhuman Podcast. Hosts Haley and Andrea met on social media right before the pandemic and bonded over talking about true crime cases that they were following or wanted to learn more about while they were stuck at home. They decided to dig into a few cases some more, thus deciding to create Inhuman Podcast. Both human and fur moms, they are passionate about sharing victim stories through their podcast. Inhuman works to humanize the victims of true crime cases who are often overlooked as focus tends to remain on the monsters. Inhuman covers two new true crime cases weekly. They love to share lesser-known cases, missing persons, and unsolved crimes to help bring awareness to them. Each episode provides a deep dive into a new case that you may have never heard of. They're here to share stories and bring you the facts about true crime cases. They give voices to the voiceless and advocate for the victims. New episodes release every Monday and Thursday. They are available on all podcast platforms. Be sure to subscribe to Inhuman Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen. You can also find them on TikTok and Instagram at Inhuman underscore podcast, or check out their website, InhumanPodcast.com. Marie There was outraged, but Lisa expected that the application could only be approved if Victoria was considered to be at risk. It was no wonder Marie There was indigent. By this stage, she was no longer working, having lost her cleaning job due to excessive absenteeism. Three days later, Marie There called Lisa in hysterics, alleging that Carl had sexually abused Victoria on three separate occasions. Marie There hauled Victoria and Carl down to Herringway Social Services. Marie There was interviewed about her allegation, and child protection staff explained to her in detail the potential consequences including Victoria being subjected to an invasive medical examination. They asked Marie There to fully consider whether she wished to proceed, as this would also trigger police involvement. The following day, Marie There attended a meeting with Herringay Social Services staff, but without a police officer present, she told social workers that Victoria revealed the allegations were false, and that she now wanted this withdrawn. Social workers were suspicious that Marie There had simply used Victoria in order to obtain approval of her housing application. They told her that she and Victoria were required to live apart from Carl, while the matter of the false allegation was investigated. Given it was so serious, Marie There assured social services that they would go on and live with friends, but instead returned home to Carl's flat. Social work staff didn't follow through to ensure Marie There was complying with the instructions. David Batie of The Guardian newspaper, who later provided extensive coverage on Victoria, 
reported that PC Jones was assigned to investigate why false allegations was made against Carl and then quickly withdrawn. Given the sudden and serious nature of Marie Therese's allegation and the hastiness with which she withdrew it, Haringey Social Services scheduled a further meeting with Marie Therese to discuss Victoria's welfare. This was one of 15 actions identified by social services as necessary for Lisa and PC Jones to follow through to ensure appropriate monitoring of Victoria. Lisa wrote to Marie Therese requesting a meeting, but received no response. She called repeatedly and left voicemails, but these were also ignored. Lisa sought police assistance to track down Marie Therese and Victoria but as a junior social worker, she was struggling with the complexity of the case. Lisa felt she wasn't receiving appropriate or regular supervision with her supervisor, Carol, who was often absent from work and had a tendency to cancel or reschedule supervision sessions, or simply didn't attend. The BBC later reported that when Lisa's supervision session did happen, Carol wouldn't focus on work-related issues. Instead, Talking about her experience as a black woman and her relationship with God, Lisa felt that Carol's lack of availability, even when she was in the office, only added to unsupportive professional environment. Since August, Marie Therese had been taking Victoria to several local churches, telling ministers that Victoria was possessed and required an exorcism. She cited the fact that Victoria was incontinent as evidence of possession as well as her numerous and serious injuries, which she told the ministers were self-inflicted. Victoria's incontinence had become so serious that the sofa bed on which she slept had to be thrown out in October. It was around this time that Marie Therese approached Pastor Pascal Arome of the Mission Ensemble de Christ in South London. She told him that Victoria was putting excrement into food, burning herself, and making a mess of Carl's flat. Together, the minister and Marie Therese offered prayers for Victoria to cast out the devil. Between December 1999 and January 2000, Lisa visited Carl's flat on three occasions, but no one answered the door. By this time, Lisa had a new supervisor. Concerns had been raised about her original supervisor, Carol, being found professionally unfit for her job. So back in November 1999, Carol was replaced by a new manager named Angela. But we'll get to that later in our story. With Carol replaced and Angela now on board, Lisa told her superiors that she thought Marie Therese and Victoria had moved out of the area and returned to France. Despite having no evidence to support this view, management didn't arrange any further inquiries. Instead, a note was made to this effect on Victoria's file on December 23rd. Two months after the sexual abuse allegation, PC Jones wrote to Marie Therese, asking her to attend a police interview in late January. Marie Therese didn't respond, but PC Jones didn't take any further action until February 7th, when she contacted Lisa, who advised that social services hadn't been able to make contact with Marie Therese or Victoria either, PC Jones decided to close the police case completely. The following day, Lisa wrote to Marie Therese, advising if she didn't make contact, Victoria's file with Herringay Social Services would be closed. 
In February 2000, Marie There took Victoria to the Universal Church of the Kingdom of God in North London on two occasions. At the second visit on February 24th, church pastor Alvaro Lima noticed Victoria appeared cold, wet, and her eyelids were fluttering. Marie There told the minister that Victoria was possessed by Satan. He insisted the young girl be taken to the hospital. But despite his suspicions that Victoria was being neglected, he didn't take any further action or contact social services. A cab was called to take Marie There and Victoria to hospital. But when the driver arrived, he was so shocked at Victoria's stooped posture, fragile, disheveled condition, and dirty clothes that he instead drove the pair to Tottenham Ambulance Station. Paramedics initially thought Victoria was dead due to her faint pulse and failure to respond to pain stimuli. They also noticed she smelled of bleach and rushed her to North Middlesex Hospital for treatment. Victoria's hypothermia, organ failure, and malnutrition was assessed as being so severe that she was transferred to the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at St. Mary's Hospital in West London in the early hours of the following day. Hospital staff noticed numerous old bruises, scars, and ulcers on Victoria's wrists and ankles, streaky bruises across her buttocks, and that her face and hands were swollen. Marie There told doctors that Victoria had stopped eating the day before, so she'd contacted her church, which had diagnosed Victoria as being possessed by an evil spirit. Marie There denied giving Victoria any drugs, only holy water, saying that she and the church community had prayed for Victoria. In the ambulance on the way to St. Mary's Hospital, paramedics noticed that even though Marie There repeatedly pleaded, quote, my baby, my baby, she didn't seem as distressed or desperate as a parent normally would, given the circumstances. When Victoria arrived in intensive care, her body was already shutting down. Her core temperature was so low that an accurate reading couldn't be measured, and her legs were so bent that they couldn't be straightened. At the same time, Dr. Rossiter at North Middlesex Hospital had attempted to call Heron Gay Social Services. She was critical of their involvement in Victoria's case so far and demanded to know what they had been doing for Victoria to have returned in such a state. She also tried to get through to alert the team to Victoria's admission and her impending transfer to St. Mary's Hospital. Despite the relentless efforts of intensive care staff to keep Victoria alive, her condition continued to deteriorate. Later that afternoon, she died after suffering cardiac arrest. Medical staff alerted police, who arrested Marie There at the hospital. The 42-year-old appeared to be consumed by despair, pleading, quote, It is terrible. I have just lost my child. The home office pathologist who examined Victoria's body after she died found 128 separate cuts, abrasions, bruises, welts, scars, and cigarette burns on her tiny, malnourished body. The cause of death was hypothermia, resulting from malnutrition, a damp environment, and restricted movement. Victoria's lungs, kidneys, and heart all failed. It was evident that she'd not only been beaten with sharp and blunt instruments, but also restrained by her wrists and ankles over a prolonged period of time. 
Haringey Social Services still had no idea that Victoria had been admitted to the hospital or that she died. As far as they were concerned, there had simply been no further contact from Marie There. In a morbid coincidence, Social Services Management instructed that Victoria's file be closed on the day she died with the note, complete appropriate paperwork for no further action. Marie There appeared grief-stricken at the hospital, but it was a different story once she was escorted to the police station. During her interview, she was defiant, defensive, and uncooperative. She flatly denied abusing Victoria and was outraged that anyone would suggest such a thing, instead insisting that Victoria was possessed by the devil. Police arrested Carl Manning the following day. He also claimed that Victoria was possessed, but was far more forthcoming with additional information. Carl admitted that both he and Marie Therese had physically abused Victoria. He recalled in harrowing detail how the defenseless girl had been punched and beaten with a bicycle chain, shoes, a wooden spoon, a coat hanger, a belt buckle, and wire. Carl told police that Marie Therese had also broken Victoria's toes by hitting them with a hammer. When police searched Carl's flat, they discovered something astonishing. A young girl's passport, in the name of Anna Callio, revealed that since leaving the Ivory Coast, Marie Therese had been fraudulently presenting her great-niece to extended family, friends, and authorities as someone else. Further investigation revealed that the small girl was in fact Victoria Klimbe, and it was some weeks after her death that English police were able to track down her parents in their home country to break the devastating news. The Klimbeas were flown to London to identify their daughter's body in a state of shock that this could be happening. Marie Therese hadn't been in touch frequently by any means, and the last update Victoria's parents received was in early 2000, when they received a Christmas card from Marie Therese containing photos of a smiling Victoria. On the back of one photograph, Marie Therese had scrolled, quote, She's growing up and she finds herself well. What nobody knew was that Marie Therese had originally planned to take a different girl to France named Anna. The girl lived in the same area as the Clembiers, and her parents had consented to their arrangement. When Marie Therese arrived in the Ivory Coast, she was carrying a passport and Anna's name, but at the last minute, Anna's parents changed their minds, so Marie Therese approached the Clembiers instead. In order for Victoria to more closely resemble Anna's photo, Marie Therese arranged hair extensions for Victoria. She instructed her young charge that her new name was Anna, and they left the country. Carl told police that his understanding was that Marie Therese intended to return Victoria to her parents in the Ivory Coast. When inquiries were made with French authorities, police learned that Marie Therese claimed she lived with her three sons in order to claim welfare benefits. But more disturbing evidence was recovered during the search of Carl's flat, which police felt had recently been thoroughly cleaned. They found numerous bottles of bleach and clumps of masking tape in the rubbish. They also recovered evidence of tiny spots of Victoria's blood on the bathroom walls, in the bathtub, in the hall, on furniture in the living area, and on Carl's shoes. It was evident that clumps of masking tape had been used to restrain and bind Victoria's hands and feet. 
In his police statement, Carl revealed that when the sofa bed was thrown out the previous October, due to Victoria's incontinence, he and Marie There forced Victoria to sleep in the bathtub. She had no clothes, blankets, or pillows, instead shivering naked through the freezing nights in the depths of winter, with nothing more than a trash can liner for protection. Carl explained to police that the top of the liner was secured around Victoria's neck, like a makeshift sleeping bag, with her hands and feet bound with masking tape, there was no way to escape. Victoria's incontinence continued, and she was forced to sleep in her own waist in the frigid temperatures of the unheated bathroom. It wasn't clear to police why Victoria was sleeping in the trash bag by February. Carl told detectives that he and Marie There became concerned about the corrosive effects on Victoria's skin of sleeping in her own urine and feces, which may have prompted further questions by authorities if continued. The murder trial of Marie There and Carl began on November 20, 2000, in the Central Criminal Court at London's Old Bailey. Marie There pleaded not guilty, while Carl pleaded guilty to charges of child cruelty and manslaughter. In a diary entry read to the court, Carl described Victoria as Satan. His chilling confession to police read, quote, You could beat her, and she would not cry at all. She could take the beatings and pain like anything. The court heard how, by the start of 2000, Marie There and Carl were forcing Victoria to eat out of a plastic plate in the bath. As her hands were still bound by masking tape, she had no choice but to eat by pushing her face towards the food. On the stand, Marie There never wavered from her claim that Victoria was possessed by demons. She responded aggressively to questions, showed no remorse, and even laughed throughout the proceedings. Carl admitted some responsibility, saying he injured Victoria but had no intentions to kill her at the time. Neither of the accused child killers provided any explanation as to why they abused their young charge. Victoria's parents were spared hearing the details of their daughter's imprisonment and horrific abuse as they were witnesses for the prosecution and therefore didn't hear other evidence presented in court. A detective came and knocked on the door and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to Season 2 of Proof wherever you get your podcasts and follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. 
the debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. After four days of deliberation, on January 12, 2001, the jury found both Marie There and Carl guilty of Victoria's murder. Before handing down his sentence, the judge pointedly criticized the numerous agencies who had involvement or contact with Victoria during her short time in London, describing them as blindingly incompetent. In sentencing both Marie There and Carl to life imprisonment, the judge spoke plainly about Victoria's torturous ordeal, telling the convicted child killers, quote, What she endured was truly unimaginable. She died at both your hands a lonely, drawn-out death. The cumulative failure of social services from four separate consuls, two child protection police teams, two hospitals, a specialist NSPCC center, and local churches in protecting Victoria would be heavily scrutinized at an upcoming inquiry. When it came to demanding answers and accountability of specific individuals, the British press were out for social worker Lisa Arthurwery's blood. Since March 2000, both Lisa and her supervisor, Angela, had been suspended on full pay, pending further investigation. Lisa's former supervisor, Carol, had already been suspended the previous month, but this was unrelated to her involvement in Victoria's case. Still, Media criticism of those at management and executive level with the agencies involved was scathing and widespread. Victoria's body was returned to her family, who took her back to her community in the Ivory Coast, where she was laid to rest by those who truly loved her. Despite the conclusion of the criminal trial, the long and painful road for the Kumbias and finding justice for Victoria wasn't over yet. In April 2001, three months after the murder trial concluded, the British government announced that a statutory inquiry would be conducted into the circumstances leading to Victoria's death. Former Chief Inspector of the Social Services Inspectorate, Lord Herbert Laming, was appointed to lead the inquiry. The first of its kind, the proceedings would be a tripartite inquiry, consisting of three simultaneous inquiries underpinned by three different pieces of legislation and conducted in two phases. Marie There and Carl were requested to testify before the inquiry in order to assist in determining how Victoria's abuse and death could have been prevented. The manner in which the various authorities responded to the situation and cooperated with each other would not escape scrutiny. Phase 1 got underway on September 26, 2001 focusing on investigating the agencies and individuals directly involved in Victoria's case. The BBC reported that lead counsel for the inquiry said Victoria must have endured unimaginable suffering, reiterating how Victoria was fed meals by her abusers. Quote, The food would be cold and would be given to her on a piece of plastic while she was tied up in the bath. She would eat it like a dog 
pushing her face to the plate. Except, of course, that a dog is not usually tied up in a plastic bag full of excrement. To say that Victoria was treated like a dog would be wholly unfair. She was treated worse than a dog. Lead counsel urged the inquiry to consider that the issue of race in Victoria's African-Caribbean background may have influenced the way her case was handled from the outset. Victoria's parents were the first witnesses to provide evidence. Her father, Francis, broke down upon seeing the photographs of his daughter with a tooth missing and burns on her face, saying, quote, If someone is to take responsibility, it must be a person at the very top. Victoria's mother added, My little girl was taken to the hospital. It was there that she should have been saved. The people there didn't seem able to do their job. Today, this has happened to me, but tomorrow it could happen to somebody else. The home office pathologist described Victoria's post-mortem to the inquiry, saying, quote, This poor girl had scars all over her body, on the head, on the trunk, front and back, and on all four limbs. Many of the scars suggested they've been due to a weapon-type injury, so you can see from the nature and extent of injuries why this would be the worst case I've encountered. In terms of the nature, extent, and the almost systematic nature of the inflicted injury, I certainly regard this as the worst I have ever dealt with, and it is just about the worst I've ever heard of. The inquiry heard that the in-house phone referral made to Ealing Social Services in late April 1999 hadn't been documented. Therefore, none of the details Marie Therese provided in her quest to find housing could be cross-checked. The inquiry also heard that, incredibly, when Esther Akka notified Brent Social Services in June 1999, a senior social worker involved in the case had previously been ordered not to work with children after being disciplined by the organization six years earlier. The social worker claimed that the referral from Esther's initial report was never received, but that he did respond to the second report. This contradicted weighty evidence given by other employees of Brent Social Services, who stated that nothing was done after Esther's second report. The inquiry heard that when Victoria was first admitted to Central Middlesex Hospital in mid-July 1999, the registrar rejected Marie Therese's explanation that Victoria's injuries were caused by scratching due to scabies, but the doctor was overruled by Dr. Schwartz, who confirmed the diagnosis. The inquiry-led consult described the failure of other individuals to question the differences of medical opinion as disturbing. The inquiry also heard that despite the concerns of hospital staff resulting in a police protection order, this was lifted purely on the basis of the scabies diagnosis. P.C. Dewar, who had made the order, didn't question Dr. Schwartz, conduct an assessment, or visit Victoria. Dr. Schwartz admitted that she erred in originally diagnosing scabies and that she was responsible for procedural failures that resulted in Victoria returning home. She also admitted to failing to write discharge letters and inappropriately delegating the writing of the letter to social services to a junior doctor. This resulted in the letter stating that there was no child protection concerns. Dr. Schwartz told the inquiry she didn't suspect physical abuse was occurring per se, but that she expected social services to follow up on her concerns about Victoria. Michelle, the social worker from Brent, who liaised with PC Dewar, 
told the inquiry that even though she disagreed with Dr. Schwartz's diagnosis at the time, she trusted her, but that in hindsight, she quote, would have done things differently. The inquiry heard that Dr. Rossiter of North Middlesex Hospital wrote in late July 1999 that Victoria was able to be discharged. Despite the fact that another doctor claimed Dr. Rossiter was adamant that Victoria had been abused, Dr. Rossiter told the inquiry that her notes didn't mean she wanted Victoria to return home, merely that she was physically fit to leave the hospital. Like Dr. Schwartz, Dr. Rossiter told the inquiry that she was of the understanding that police and social services would follow up with Victoria. Dr. Rossiter was unaware that neither Herringay Social Services nor local police had any information about her concerns around Victoria being abused. The health visitor who was understood to have been tasked with following up on Victoria told the inquiry that no one from North Middlesex Hospital contacted her about the context of the case. The hospital staff rejected this assertion. The inquiry heard that the senior social worker who referred Victoria to the NSPCC Center in early August couldn't recall the follow-up conversation where he advised the organization that Victoria had moved out of the Herringay area and that the case was closed. Social worker Petra Kitchman told the inquiry that following Dr. Rossiter's initial letter in August, she spoke to Victoria's social worker, Lisa Arthurwery, twice. However, Lisa denied this. Lisa admitted to the inquiry that when she first had contact with Marie Teray and Victoria in August 1999, she had no understanding of Victoria's background or that she was from the Ivory Coast. She said her preconceived ideas about African-Caribbean families may have influenced her judgment and decision-making. Lisa testified that in hindsight, she regretted making such generalizations in the context of Victoria's circumstances. Lead counsel at the inquiry noted that even though PC Jones told Lisa in August she wouldn't visit the flat because she was scared of catching scabies, she clearly wasn't concerned to such an extent that she took steps to address the fact that Victoria was living in such conditions. The inquiry heard that following Marie Therese's allegations of sexual abuse in November 1999, the police sergeant overseeing the investigation felt that Herringay social workers aggressively obstructed police involvement in dealing with child protection cases. The sergeant stated that Lisa's most recent supervisor, Angela, was quite difficult to deal with but he did acknowledge that he lacked the necessary experience to allow him to adequately supervise P.C. Jones in her carriage of the case. Lead counsel for the inquiry criticized Lisa for not detecting any of the abuse. She had only met Victoria on four occasions, where they were together for a total of less than 30 minutes on each occasion. Even though Victoria's first language was French and her English was poor, no French interpreter was ever arranged. Lisa testified that Victoria was the most complicated case she'd ever handled, telling the inquiry that when she told her supervisor Angela that she felt Marie Therese and Victoria had left the country, Angela instructed her to close the file. Lisa told the inquiry that three days after Victoria died, Angela also removed a key contact sheet document from Victoria's file. Lisa claimed she didn't tell anyone about the disposal of the document due to Angela's reputation for, quote, being a bully to those she did not get on with. Lisa's superiors accused her of both negligence and failing to safeguard and promote Victoria's interests. Lisa's most recent supervisor, Angela, 
denied removing any documents from Victoria's file after her death or that she made false or misleading statements. She did admit to not reading Victoria's file and closing it on the day she died, but denied that Lisa informed her about the sexual abuse allegation. As for Lisa's former supervisor, Carol, she had been asked numerous times by the inquiry since May 2001 to attend to provide evidence. She repeatedly failed to attend until Lord Laming issued a summons. When Carol finally appeared at the inquiry in January 2002, she begged Victoria's parents for forgiveness, saying she had been mentally ill. The inquiry noted that it needed to consider whether Carol's poor mental health had been declining in the months prior to Victoria's death and while she was supervising Lisa. Carol had told her own supervisors that there was no reason for her to believe she was experiencing poor mental health prior to January 2000. She dismissed Lisa's criticisms of her supervisory deficiencies, but admitted she didn't read Victoria's file properly. Marie Therese originally refused to attend the inquiry to give evidence and had to be escorted. On the stand, she was aggressive and refused to answer questions posed by the lead counsel. She ranted and raved that she was innocent, claiming that she was the victim of a conspiracy and screaming, quote, People are there to put everything on me to make me become a monster. I am a very good mom. I am a mom, and I am a grandma. I know how to love children. I know how to care for children. I have proof I was loving that small girl. Shouting and gesticulating, the convicted child killer claimed the photographs of Victoria's scalded face were faked. Yelling, quote, I love that little girl. She was my daughter in my heart. Proceedings were temporarily adjourned due to the Marie Therese disruptive behavior. Victoria's parents found the spectacle distressing. Her mother telling BBC they were angry with Marie Therese. Quote, not for the crime she had done, but for the lies she has been telling. I don't believe she loved her daughter. If she had loved us, then my daughter would be here right now. In contrast, when Carl Manning appeared by video link... He apologized for his part in the sickening incident, telling the inquiry that none of the agencies involved could be blamed for Victoria's abuse or her death. Carl told the inquiry that he had started hitting Victoria because of her incontinence. This began with slaps, but the abuse soon escalated to punching. When it came to the evidence given by management of each local council involved, responses were mixed. The director of Ealing Social Services admitted to the inquiry that their staff made mistakes in handling Victoria's case. The director of Housing and Social Services in Herringay found herself facing serious consequences. She was issued with a summons to appear at the inquiry and provide all documents related to Victoria's case, being threatened with six months of jail if she failed to comply. The delayed finalization of Phase 1 of the inquiry, with Herringay Council providing 630 critical documents, embarrassingly late in the proceedings. Further delays were experienced when 71 additional documents were provided by Herringay five months after the inquiry began. The former chief executive of Herringay Council was also ordered to attend to give evidence. He rejected any accountability for his involvement telling the inquiry he couldn't have done anything to prevent the tragedy. By the time Phase 1 concluded, 270 witnesses had provided written and verbal evidence, 
and more than 1,500 documents had been obtained. No stone was left unturned. With the BBC reporting that the inquiry went as far as engaging a team of private investigators to trace around 30 witnesses to provide evidence, but it wasn't over yet. Phase two of the inquiry ran from March 15th to April 26, 2002, in the form of five seminars, which examined the British child protection system in general. Lord Laming was assisted by a team of expert child protection advisors, including specialists in pediatric medicine, nursing, social services, and policing. These seminars identified the need for a new management and accountability structure, improvements in service provision and delivery, timely and appropriate assessments and response to referrals, exchange of information between professionals, monitoring the performance of key agencies, and establishing a national database for children. With Phase 2 concluded, Lord Laming commenced a lengthy process of drafting his recommendations. In late August 2002, Lisa Arthurworry's former social work supervisor, Carol, became the first person in Britain to be prosecuted for deliberately breaching an inquiry summons over her repeated failure to attend Phase 1 to give evidence. Carol maintained that prior to January 2000, she was unable to attend the inquiry due to a mental illness. However, the judge rejected this, citing a psychiatrist's assessment that while Carol had indeed been unwell prior to the inquiry, there was no evidence to suggest that this was the case. At the time she received her summons, Carol was found guilty and fined 500 pounds. In November 2002, following disciplinary proceedings, Lisa and her second supervisor, Angela, were both sacked for gross misconduct and added to a government register prohibiting them from working with children. Lisa later appealed her dismissal from Herringay Social Services, but this was denied. However, she did win her appeal against the ban preventing her from working with children. In late January 2003, Lord Laming's report was finally presented to Parliament. The Guardian reported that at a press conference announcing the publication of the report, Victoria's mother sang her daughter's favorite song. After telling those assembled, quote, Victoria's memory will remain with us, her father and brothers and sisters and myself, forever. She would be the first one to put her hand up and say, I'd like to sing. She always used to sing this particular song, the song for children and young people. I would like to share this song with you. The report found that the agencies involved in Victoria's care had indeed failed to protect her, identifying at least 12 occasions where key services and senior individuals missed the opportunity to intervene to protect Victoria and take steps that would have prevented her death. Lord Laming made 108 recommendations heavily geared towards holding senior management accountable for future failures to protect vulnerable children. Victoria's father, Francis, was vocal in his support of the report's recommendations, saying, quote, It can offer us opportunities to prevent another death. Victoria will only stop crying when the agencies stop failing children. The recommendations, in our view, make a lot of sense and need to be implemented. If we are to learn any lesson from this, we must make sure these recommendations are implemented. Victoria's senseless death proved to be the catalyst for an overhaul of the British child protection system. With the inquiry, the most expensive child protection investigation in British history, 
costing 3.8 million pounds. It saw the implementation of initiatives like Every Child Matters, which was the government's policy response to inquiries, findings, and recommendations. New legislation was introduced in the form of the Children's Act, and a new government body was established, the Office of the Children's Commissioner. The BBC reported that this also saw the birth of a new regulatory agency, the General Social Care Council, as well as the Social Care Institute for Excellence, which aimed to promote higher standards of child protection practice. Haringey Social Services in particular was subject to ongoing government monitoring and supervision by Social Services Inspectorate. In 2004, the BBC reported on disciplinary proceedings conducted regarding six police officers from Brent and Haringey who faced misconduct charges over their involvement in the case. None of the officers were dismissed, instead receiving reprimands and cautions. At the same time, professional misconduct charges against Dr. Schwartz, who diagnosed Victoria with scabies during her second hospital admission, were dropped by the General Medical Council. Former Haringey Social Work Supervisor Angela Mares repealed the ban preventing her from working with children. This went all the way to the High Court, and like Lisa, she won. But this didn't change the fact that the inquiry didn't accept her claims, instead concluding that she demonstrated a failure to fully grasp the seriousness of Victoria's case. Following the inquiry, Victoria's parents established a foundation in Victoria's name, campaigning for the improvements in child protection policies and practices, and ensuring effective links and coordination between statutory agencies and communities. They also established the Victoria Columbia Charitable Trust, an organization aimed at raising funds to build a school in their Ivorian community of Abo. In their Ivorian community of Abobo, the goal is to provide local educational opportunities for Ivorian children, limiting the need for parents to send their children away with relatives into vulnerable situations. For those of you who are interested in further information about the foundation or would like to donate, please see the show notes in your app or on our website. Listener, the sweeping child protection reforms implemented in Britain following Victoria's death tragically didn't prevent similar situations from occurring. Far from it. 